watch a blooper reel of Meredith all day, as long as it's not me. (laughs) Before we begin this morning, will you pray with me? God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Like I mentioned earlier, this morning we are continuing our sermon series called Faith Matters. Reagan actually kicked us off last week. I hope you were able to hear her message. But if you didn't, we looked at the early church in Acts and how Peter's thinking of who could follow Jesus was actually transformed and it was expanded. Reagan challenged us to consider this concept that we are all created in the image and likeness of God. And how that fact alone moves us to embrace one another and to deeply care for one another, to include and to listen to each other. I especially feel passionate about this sermon series being the series that we cover after Easter Sunday, because in the church, we are still in the Easter season. And it's really important for us that after celebrating the resurrection of Christ, that we look at the beginning of the church. So Christ was resurrected. What are the people left with? How do those first followers of Jesus continue the faith to what it is today? So all series long, we will be looking at the book of Acts with those very first believers. And the goal for each of us during this series is to notice and to think more critically about why we believe the things we believe as followers of Jesus and to understand to an extent where some of those beliefs originated from. That's why each Sunday we will also be highlighting a theologian or two to get their take on this theological topic. And theology just means the study of God or the need to understand God. Last week, our congregation had the opportunity to confirm 34 students. And confirmation is a huge part of the Methodist Church because we believe it's really important for our students to have language to put with their beliefs. We want our students to be able to articulate the reasons behind what we do what we do and why we believe what we believe. I've had the privilege of teaching the parent component of that class for a few years, and I love seeing adults be transformed by what they learn. The pieces start to suddenly fall into place for these adults who have been in the church for many years. They finally have the space to go deeper and to look at some of these core truths they believe but may not have the words or the history behind. It's so cool to see that click, that, ah, those are the words I've been searching for come to fruition in adults' faces. As we continue this series, we will learn that there aren't always super easy black and white answers to what we're looking for. 
because we're talking about belief and faith and things that can be deeply personal to each of us. And we'll find out that not only do we have different beliefs sitting here in this room, but that theologians and even the earliest followers of Christ had different understandings of how we could best be Christ followers. Theologians are usually known for their wisdom, but as we read their words, we'll learn that they're simply trying to find a way to explain how they understand God with others. I do not believe that my job here in front of you all as a preacher is to give everyone a nice, neat language to use for their faith. However, I do want to expose us to a bit of the history and means behind what we as a church come to hold as our truths and to challenge us to name what we believe, to find a language or an understanding that works for each of us while still sustaining some of that beautiful mystery that is God. Ever since I was in high school, I have found myself mesmerized by airplanes. I've had a few physics classes. I know that there are scientific reasons why airplanes are able to fly. I know that there's something called aerodynamics, and there are all these formulas and machinery involved that give reason to how something so enormous can lift off and fly into the sky. But at my core, the beauty of airplanes and my mesmeration with the impressiveness of the whole flying thing is something I don't need words for. I'm happy to sit in some intentional ignorance and be swept away by the beauty. This can be true for the mystery of God too. It's okay for us to have words for our faith, to want to have something to point to. And it's okay for us to still find ourselves speechless and without explanation for other aspects of our faith. If you find yourself wanting more words, wanting explanations, I want to encourage us all together to dig deeper and maybe you're sitting here and you are in a place in your life where you just want to soak up that mystery that is God. And there's room here for you today too. If we subscribe to our belief from last week, our main focus from last week, that we are all created in the image of God and that we have a common humanity that links us all together, then we also have to face the fact that as a common people, we have a common problem too. Our scripture reading this morning is from the Acts of the Apostle. Acts is a continuation of the Gospel of Luke. It is written by the same author. You can actually read them together and they flow very nicely. Acts begins with the aftermath of the resurrection and then moves into Pentecost, which we're going to put a pin in. We'll pick up on Pentecost with Pentecost Sunday at the end of May. 
So today, we're going to actually read the third chapter of Acts. Now, Peter is one of the main focuses in Acts. He is one of the disciples, and he gives eight speeches in this book of the New Testament. And in each speech, Peter kind of gives the people information about his understanding of Christ and the resurrection and what it means to best follow Jesus. We'll read his second speech this morning. He and John have just been at the temple gate and they have healed a man who has been crippled since birth. So let's hear the reaction. We're going to be in Acts 3 chapter, in Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 19. Hear these words. While the healed man clung to Peter and John, all the people rushed toward them at Solomon's porch, completely amazed. Seeing this, Peter addressed the people, you Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Why are you staring at us as if we made him walk by our own power or piety? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus. This is the one you handed over and denied in Pilate's presence, even though he had already decided to release him. You rejected the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you instead. You killed the author of life, the very one whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. His name itself has made this man strong. That is because of faith in Jesus' name, God has strengthened this man whom you see and know. The faith that comes through Jesus gave him complete health right before your eyes. Brothers and sisters, I know you acted in ignorance. So did your rulers. But this is how God fulfilled what he foretold through all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer. Change your hearts and lives. Turn back to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Let's read that one more time. Change your hearts and lives. Turn back to God so that your sins may be wiped away. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let the church say, thanks be to God. As a people, as a common humanity, this common problem that we all have, that we all share, is what Peter talks about right there at the end. Sin. Peter's theology or his understanding of God is that Jesus died because of humanity's sin. He specifically points at the community who he says killed Jesus, but that's neither here nor there for our purposes today. Uh, I feel like we could easily point a finger right back at Peter for denying Jesus, but neither here nor there. Peter acknowledges that the common sin, that sin is our common problem. Sin takes on a lot of different shades in the world. It masquerades in a number of different ways. And as United Methodists in the past century or so, I would say, we haven't spent a whole lot of time focusing on talking about sin. Personally, 
I usually talk more about the ways that we mess up and push God's love away in our own lives. But sin is the word. That's what I'm talking about when I use that language. It's just something about that three-letter word that doesn't come out of my mouth very often. And there are a few reasons I'm hesitant to use that word when I talk about us rebelling against God's love. The first of which is I grew up surrounded by faith traditions that used sin and our shortcomings as a way to manipulate others into believing. It was used as a scare tactic. I have a lot of issues with this type of theology because when I read about the teachings and the ministry of Jesus, I don't see Jesus manipulating others to draw near to God or using fear to control others. Instead, I see a Christ who shows compassion to those who mess up, to those who are overlooked, and a Christ who takes intentional time to teach the masses in a very convicting, yet still caring kind of way. But this idea of original sin and human sin in general is a core belief of Methodist. John Wesley, the unintended founder of the United Methodist Church, just the Methodist Church, he actually had a pretty strong belief that we were all really deeply sinful people. That's why John Wesley pushed so hard to get people into communities, what he called class meetings, these kind of small groups where they could be held accountable on a regular basis. I'm talking they had to meet two times every single week together and that they worked toward this type of Christian perfection. John Wesley preached time and time again about Christ's grace being the only thing that can redeem us from our sinful nature. So even if you don't hear me preach on sin every week, and you won't, trust that I all know we each fall short and that we are all in need of a grace larger than anything we could ever understand. But like John Wesley, I don't prefer to encourage people to focus solely on the ways we fall short because, and here's the second reason Stephanie doesn't love preaching about sin all the time, When we talk about sin, when we focus on the way that everyone falls short, we start to see those characteristics in the people around us. We don't always look inward. Instead, we start to look outward and we compare ourselves with others. And often a trap Christians fall into is becoming really judgy about other people's lives and the way they connect and relate to Christ. When we talk about sin, we have to open our eyes to the world around us. And often, we just fall deeper in and we believe other people are worse than ourselves. We find judgment and we dive deep into this compounded negativity 
a lot of friends that I grew up with unanimously agree that the reason they don't go to church or don't consider themselves Christians is because their firsthand experience with Christians has been that they are hypocritical and judgmental. When we only talk about sin, we can easily become so sucked into judging others that we don't work on creating communities where we can practice love and forgiveness and building a better world together. Our theologian focus today is a woman named Lucretia Mott. She lived the majority of her life in the 1800s in New England. She is well known not only as a theologian, but as a Quaker preacher, an abolitionist, and an advocate for women's rights. Mott worked closely with famous women like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. She also gave a speech at the very first Seneca Falls Convention where Frederick Douglass was in attendance. She was truly in the middle of a very important moment in history, and she spoke tirelessly on her understanding that all people are created in God's image and that all people deserve equal rights in every sense of the phrase. It should be no surprise, based just on that, that she was very outspoken in her belief that the leading forms of evil or sin were slavery, the oppression of black and American Indians, the subjugation of women, intemperance, and war. And Lucretia Mott had this beautiful concept of what I would call today the Holy Spirit. She writes this, my convictions led me to adhere to the sufficiency of the light within us, resting on truth as authority rather than taking authority for truth. Quakers and Lucretia Mott in particular had this concept of inner light that was almost this inner spiritual nature that each of us possessed. That because all people were created in the image and the likeness of God, that there was something deep inside that linked everyone with their creator. She believed that sin is what happens when we ignore this inner light. I would encourage us to think of it as the Holy Spirit with us. When God has this voice in our lives and we are actively saying, no way, that's not for us. That turning away from God was what she would call an act of sin. Lucretia opened one of her sermons with these words. It is time that Christians were judged more by their likeness to Christ than their notions of Christ. Were this sentiment generally admitted, we should not see such tenacious adherence to what men deem the opinions and doctrines of Christ, while at the same time in everyday practice is exhibited anything by a likeness to Christ. By listening to God's call in our lives, by being in tune to that inner light, as Mott would call it, we become more Christ-like, and our sin becomes less. When we listen to God, 
we also become a little less focused on worldly things and the opinions of other people. Yes, sin exists. Yes, we have all sinned and we will sin. In acknowledging our common problem of sin, we're able to recognize that we are not alone in this problem. When really terrible things happen in our lives, there aren't always a lot of words that can bring comfort or make it better. I particularly hate certain platitudes like, everything happens for a reason or God must have a better plan in mind, or things will feel much better after some time has passed. I really don't care in the moment if the person saying those things truly believes them or not. Rarely are they helpful when I'm in deep, deep pain. In my experience, one of the few things that can actually help in those moments of hurt and pain, and that can even alleviate a little bit of the pain I'm feeling, is knowing that someone else has gone through something similar to me. While I may not be emotionally in a place to hear the similar story, just knowing that I'm not the only person in the world who has felt this way brings a little bit of comfort. I want each of us to hear that message today. We are not alone in our problem of sin, in our problem of pushing God's love away in our life, in silencing what Lucretia Mott calls that inner light. Even though sin is in the world, we can't use that as an excuse to judge others or to drown out the voice of God or to scare people into belief. John Wesley preached, the great end of religion is to renew our hearts in the image of God, to repair that total loss of righteousness and true holiness, which we sustain by the sin of our first parent. Peter preached a similar message, change your heart and lives the redemption in our sin is the promise we have of a Christ who loves us and offers us more grace than we could ever need. We can change. We can do better. We can be more like Christ. It begins with recognizing that we are not alone in our mistakes. We have a creator that knows each of us intimately, a Christ that lived as one of us, a Holy Spirit that is with us every step of the way. It also begins with recognizing our commonalities. We are common people with a common problem, and we have one another in those moments of chaos and disappointment. As we wrestle with our understanding of why faith matters, may we be confident that while sin exists, God is greater, and we can all do better. 
We are a common people with a common problem. And next week, we'll look at what a common solution for each of us is. Amen.